Well, I'd love to be able to say to you this morning, it's nice to see you, but obviously I can't do that. My name is Grant Brown, and I'm filling in for Pastor Jerry for a couple of weeks while he's on vacation. It's my privilege to open to you and to myself the Word of God this morning. We'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. But before we do, let's bow before God and ask His blessing and guidance on our message. Heavenly Father, we are Your people and we need Your Word. We need Your Holy Spirit to mediate Your Word to our hearts for our moral and spiritual benefit, for our maturity as we grow in You. As we look at you at Ephesians, and we see the unity of the body of Jesus Christ, the blessings that accompany salvation. May your Spirit apply your word to our hearts and let its power change us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell you how a bicycle changed my life. It was the Christmas of 1960, and I was 13 years old, living in South Africa, where my parents had become missionaries about 18 months before. The following January, I was going to go to a different school, and I was going to need a bicycle to get there because it was too far to walk. So on Christmas morning, I came down to, or came over to the tree, and there was a bicycle. I had not dared to hope, but I had hoped that I would get a bicycle for that Christmas. It was my best Christmas ever, uh, best Christmas gift ever. And it brought about changes in my life that I had not anticipated when I didn't own a bicycle. It changed my status. It changed my status from pedestrian to rider. It changed the community with which I interacted. It changed uh, my friends from those who didn't have bicycles to those who did. And so there was a new fraternity, a new community that it gave me access to. I hadn't anticipated that. I was now a member of the Brotherhood of Bicycle Riders. <laughs> it gave me freedom and mobility that I had not anticipated. Now I could just say to anyone who cared to listen, I'm going for a ride, and I would go. It gave me mobility. I could go where I wanted to go and go to places that I had never been before because they were too far away to walk, gave me a, 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 a certain freedom to explore new places. It also gave me a freedom to serve. Now my mother uh, could wait until the last few minutes before dinner was ready, and she could say, Grant, I need you to go to the corner cafe and get a loaf of bread. And so I would get on my bicycle and ride to the corner cafe and bring back a loaf of bread. So it gave me a freedom to serve that I had not had before and an ability to serve. It also gave me a point of identification. I went to a school where there were 800 other bicycles in the bike racks because it was a school of about 1,200 kids and uh, most of them rode bicycles to get to school. So I could put my bike in the rack, along with 800 other bicycles, and then after school was out, I could come right back to get my bicycle and no other. I never made a mistake. I never took the wrong bicycle because I identified 
my bicycle as mine, and I identified with it. It served me in that I was able to ride it to where I wanted to go, and at the same time, I cared for it. I polished it. I made the spokes shine, put black polish on the tires, all the things that American people would do for their cars if they were a little older. But in South Africa, you had to be 18 to get a driver's license for a car. So a lot of people rode bicycles uh, until then. But I identified with my bike, and it became my own. I was saved at the age of eight, put my trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins and for salvation and for forgiveness. And so at the age of eight, I became a child of God, but I didn't realize the advantages that went along with salvation, just as I did not realize the advantages that went along with bicycle owning and bicycle ownership. I wouldn't realize those blessings until later. I wouldn't understand them. But in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul, writing to the Ephesians from prison in Rome, where we find him in Acts chapter 28, talks about the blessings of salvation that Christians, followers of Christ, enjoy by virtue of their identification with Christ by virtue of their union with Christ. He first introduces this topic in Romans chapter 6, but then he expands on it in Ephesians chapter 1. And so this morning, I'd like to look at Ephesians chapter 1 and help us all to understand perhaps a little more the great benefits that come to us when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. The spiritual blessings that God bestows upon those He saves. We put our trust in Jesus. We recognize that His death was our death. Recognize that His burial was our burial so that all that He is in His righteousness now is ours. And in that new status we find that there are great benefits that come to us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, tells us the first of these six blessings or six benefits that are contained in the passage. We've been chosen to be holy and blameless in His sight, verse 3. We're adopted, and that results in coming into the very family of God. We who were formerly God's enemies are now made His children. Verse 6. Verse 7, we're redeemed and forgiven according to the riches of His grace. Verse 9, we're informed about the mystery of His will. In other words, there were things that were not known in the Old Testament, things that the, the prophets and and the people of God in the Old Testament were not allowed to know until Jesus came. And now that Jesus has come, the, the, the mystery of how God is going to get His creation back into relationship with Himself, get people back into relationship with Himself, has been disclosed. The secret is now open. 
Verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance. That is, when Jesus Christ died, the inheritance passed to those who would believe in his death and resurrection and believe in him as their Savior. So an inheritance has been granted to us. And verse 14, we have received the Holy Spirit to seal us or mark us as the people of God and children of God, and that is a pledge that the ultimate redemption and the full redemption will take place at a time of God's own choosing. So verse 3, verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, verse 11, and verse 14 all outline blessings that come about when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. They accompany salvation. Let's examine these blessings one by one and unpack this passage a little bit. The first blessing in chapter 3 and 4 is that we are holy and blameless. He chose us before creation. And we often focus on the choosing part, but we don't always Remember that we're, that we're chosen for a purpose. We're chosen to be holy and blameless. The word holy has to do with being set apart, consecrated, dedicated to the service of the deity. In our case, God the Father and our Savior Jesus Christ. We're holy in the sense that all the righteousness of Christ has come to us and He has taken our sin, 2 Corinthians 5 21. There's no real moral component, though, to the word holy. The moral component comes in blameless. We're, we're blameable in that Satan will watch our lives, and when we sin, he will accuse us before the Father, but... We are blameless in the sense that his accusations never stick. We're blameless in the sense that he can't make any, any uh, accusation against us that will bear any weight. Jesus has always interceded for us and will continue to intercede for us so that when Satan accuses us, our advocate, our Savior, steps forward and says, but I died for that person. So holy and blameless are the first status changers that come to us when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. This all happens instantaneously. It all happens in a moment. And so there's no lag time. There's no growth to a second blessing. This all happens at once. So the second blessing that comes to us as a result of our salvation and along with our salvation is that in love, verse 5, He predestined us to the adoption as sons. Adoption has always been the means whereby children who are not biological offspring are brought into the full relationship of the family and made members of the family with all the rights and privileges pertaining to that family. I was pastoring a church not far from here years ago, and in the course of my ministry there, a family adopted a sibling group of three children. And so there was a day of great joy and celebration. We all went down to the court to hear the judge 
pronounced the legal and final disposition of this adoption case. And in the process, she told the children that they now belonged to their new parents and that all that the parents had became theirs. They became members of that family by, and, and became heirs of all the rights and privileges that a natural child would have had. At the same time, the parents, said the judge, were admonished to care for and discharge their parental responsibilities to these children. And so there was a dual sense in which the children were brought into the family and gained the rights and privileges of that family. The parents were also united with the children in the sense that they became responsible for them to provide care and counsel and love and guidance and education and all the benefits of being in that family. The adopted child is equal to the natural child. But there's only one natural child. There's only one begotten son of God. That's Jesus. But when we come into God's family by adoption, Jesus becomes our older brother. If we read Hebrews 2, chapters, uh, chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, it talks about Jesus bringing many sons to glory. And the, verse, the 11th verse says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. So the Son sanctifies and those who are sanctified, us, are all from God the Father. And as a result, He, Jesus, is not ashamed to call us brothers. That's a biblically understated way of saying he's overjoyed to call us his brothers. The Father and the Son are involved in the adoption of the formerly guilty sinner, and he's brought into the family of God. All of this is according to the kind intention of his will. We're going to see this phrase recur throughout this passage. All of these things not only are blessings to us, but they reflect on the glory of the grace of God. Our third blessing that comes with salvation in verse 7 is redemption and forgiveness. In Him, again in Him, by virtue of our union with Christ, we have redemption through His blood, that is, the forgiveness of our sins. Redemption is to simply buy back what already belongs to you. Uh, God buys us back. He owns us by right of creatorship. But we were subverted into sin. Our race was seduced into sin in Eden. And now God is, through Jesus Christ, buying us back to Him, to Himself. He's purchasing us with the blood of His Son, and He's redeeming us back to Himself. Sometimes you'll hear, and I haven't done it myself, but sometimes you need a little extra money before payday. And so a working man, a carpenter, would take a 
circular saw down to the pawn shop and he'd get a little money for it. And he'd finish out the week and he'd pay his bills and he'd buy gas for his car so he could get to work. And then the next week, hopefully, he'd bring in the money that he'd borrowed plus a little more for the pawnbroker and he'd get his saw back. See, he always owned the saw, but he put it out there and then he had to buy it back. And he used the currency of the United States. In this case, God uses the currency of the blood of his son. And he buys back from the fallen human race people, redeems people back to himself. It also involves the forgiveness of our sins. And this word has to do not just with saying God saying to us, that's okay. Jesus died for you and now that's okay that you've confessed and repented. Forgiveness has more of a meaning than that. It has the idea of actually removing from us our transgressions. It actually has the idea of separating our transgressions from us so that the psalmist in Psalm 103 verse 12 can say, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I've removed your transgressions from you. Initially, our sins separate us from God, and then God separates us from our sins, forgives them, and makes us His children in the process of making us His children. The blood of Christ is applied to us. It pays the price to give God back a, the freedom, a legal basis on which to forgive us and to erase our sins and to remove our sins. There's a great picture of this in Colossians chapter 2 where uh, Paul says to the Colossian church, he removed the, the handwriting of ordinances against us and nailed it to his cross, chapter 2, verse 14 of Colossians. And the picture is that in those times, a prisoner in jail would have his rap sheet nailed to the door of his cell. And on the rap sheet would be the whole list of the wrongs that he had done, the murders he'd done, the robberies he'd done, everything that he had done was listed on the sheet. And that was the demonstration of why he was in jail. Barabbas would have had a rap sheet nailed to his door. And so when the crowd yelled, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas, rather than Christ, crucify him, give us Barabbas, Barabbas's charge sheet was taken down and in the thinking, it, in Paul's thinking in Colossians, our charge sheet is taken down and nailed to the cross so that Christ dies for our sins, the forgiveness of our charge sheet, our rap sheet. And had Barabbas put his faith in Jesus Christ, his sins would have been equally forgiven. All of this is according to the riches of his grace. You see the recurrence of that phrase, grace, kindness, riches of his grace, the glory of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom 
and insight. So that this is done not just minimally. His forgiveness is lavish. It's more than enough. And we stand forgiven because of His great grace being in Christ. Number four, He makes known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which the Father, He, purposed in the Son, notably an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, the church age, the day of the Lord, the eternal state. All through the Old Testament, there was this question, this mystery, that prophets never really got a handle on. Uh, There were uh, referred to in the Old Testament uh, two comings, the first coming and the second, and they never really got the idea so that when Jesus did come, the Pharisees couldn't imagine that he came without also bringing victory. The first coming was to, uh, they thought there was only one coming, and it was to give victory over their enemies. And all the way through the Old Testament was this question, how is God going to deal with human sin? How is God going to get his creation redeemed back to himself? What's he going to do where he remains just and yet he gets his creation and his people brought back to himself, brought back into fellowship? And now we know. Now we know that it's through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that those who put their faith in him are raised, are identified with him so thoroughly and completely and deeply that his death has become their death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. In fact, even his ascension carries us with it so that Paul in Ephesians 2, 6, the very next chapter, can say this, he has seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. Past tense, already happened. In Christ, we are already seated with Him in the very presence of God. And then there's the summing up of all things in Christ. This extends into the future. The next event in the program of God is going to be the rapture of the church. Jesus is going to come back for his saints, and he's going to take us out of the world. Those who have died in Christ will be raised. We who are still alive will be taken up. There to be with the Lord. Then there will be, I don't know how long, but perhaps not long, and the Antichrist will sign a seven-year covenant with Israel. Midway through, he'll break it, and then at the end of that seven-year covenant, Jesus will return with his saints. He came once for his saints. He will come again with his saints, and he will finally defeat his enemies. And then 
He will reign for a thousand years, and then there will be a final battle, and then, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, He will present the kingdom to the Father, so that God may be all and in all. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. So in these days he's made known the mystery of his will, says Paul. He's put together a, a, a picture for us and revealed to us more than he did the Old Testament prophets so that we now know what has happened recently in the death of Christ and we know what's going to happen because of the death of Christ. Number five, furthermore we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. What is our inheritance? Well, Jerry referred to it a couple of weeks ago when he spoke about Romans chapter 5, verse 2. We rejoice in the hope of glory. Romans chapter 8, 18. The sufferings of this present time are nothing to be compared with the glory that is to be ours. The inheritance that we will receive is heaven, eternal life, glory, changed state, eternal fellowship in the presence of God, where all is right and good and true, and nothing is false and gloomy and despairing. That's reserved for those who have rejected Jesus. He works all things after his own plan, counsel of his own will, to the end that we would be to the praise of his glory. That verse that says we have obtained an inheritance is thought by some to be, uh, tra- could, could be translated also, we were made his inheritance, so that we are his inheritance, he is our inheritance, both ideas are true, we are his and He is ours, all to the praise of His glory. Number 6, verse 13 and 14. In Him, again that phrase, in Him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, or the gospel, the good news of your salvation, have believed. And when you believed, you were marked, says the NIV, not sealed, but marked in the sense of being sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. The seal carried several uh, messages. One, it communicated authority. It identified the sender. And because the sender was a person of authority, it uh, also provided security. Only the addressee could open the sealed envelope or the sealed package on penalty of uh, uh, punishment from the authoritative sender. So the sender has the authority to send. The seal guarantees the security so that it only goes to the addressee. And the believer in Jesus Christ is sealed with nothing less than the Holy Spirit of God also called the Spirit of Christ, the third person of the Trinity. And that sealing provides the third benefit, and that is the pledge of our inheritance. This is a down payment, if you will, on 
our eventual redemption. Right now, we're redeemed in the sense that we've been forgiven and we are free from the penalty and we're free from the power of sin. But we're not free yet from the presence of sin. The time is coming when we're finally redeemed and free from the presence of sin, all to the praise of His glory. So the indwelling Holy Spirit is our mark or our pledge of God's ownership, pledge of our sanctification, the means of our sanctification, which will be fully realized when our salvation is ultimately complete at our death and resurrection to eternal life with Christ. What does all this mean for us today? Remember, this is the outworking of the union of the believer with Jesus Christ. It's also the basis on which the body of Christ is united as one. And we are welded together with other believers from all time and all places so that we are brought together into the body of Christ, of which Christ is the head. The church in Ephesus was a divided church. Uh, it was comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, and there were real problems with unity. So was the case in Rome. For millennia, the Jews had regarded themselves, and truly they were, chosen of God, and that gave them a sense of superiority. And so they resented uh, the Gentiles and thought they were second class, because they had not been chosen by God. The Gentiles, as you can imagine, uh, didn't care for that attitude, and so they in turn resented the Jews. But now in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul writes that this middle wall of hostility has been broken down. and God is in the process of making one new man out of two. This is a unity that transcends skin color and ethnicity. We're united to Christ, and we're united to followers of Christ all across the world and not too far away. We're united to the followers of Christ in St. Paul who suffered loss in the recent riots. We're united to followers of Christ in Somalia where you can be shot if somebody discovers that you're a Christian. We're united to those who lived in the 17th century, those who lived in the 4th century, we're all united in the body of Christ. And so there's no place in our life for the outrage and indignation that's so prevalent in our culture today. The outrage in our culture today is the result of many years of working God out of our public life. And to the extent that we buy into, as believers in Christ, buy into the outrage and the indignation and the political division that's present in our country today, we forfeit the unity that is in Christ rather than demonstrate it. Of course, we're free to hold our own opinions. But in Christ, we are not free to scorn or deride or diminish or tear down a brother or a sister in Christ who differs in opinion from us. 
Tim Keller points out that there's a great difficulty of doing ministry in a secular age and says that not only do we have red states and blue states, but political conflict has entered the church so that we have red evangelicals and blue evangelicals. You see, we've forgotten the higher reality of unity in Christ, and we've settled for the lower reality of union with one party or another. So I plead with you today to let the union with Christ and the unity with other believers be your defining metric, your defining priority, rather than anything else of this world. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 comes to mind. Don't let the world around you press you into its mold. Make you like it. You're to be renewing your mind. And one of the things you renew your mind with is the great unity of the believer with another believer and the unity of all believers with Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us this coming week as we attempt to factor into our lives the truth of your word, factor into our lives the reality that uh, you have made us one with Christ and one with one another. And so we lift our prayer to you, the one who is able to do more than all we could ever ask or imagine, and pray that you would work in our lives in such a way as to transform us so that we might shine as lights in an otherwise crooked and perverse world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>